You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 141. On today's show, we have part one of our pre-Clovis series, where we talk about three of the youngest pre-Clovis sites. Let's dig a little deeper and deeper and deeper (laughs) to find the (laughs) pre-Clovis. All right. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Pretty good. So we are here outside of San Antonio, Texas for the week. Just the week. And yeah, yeah we're yeah. near a, near Lake Medina, which has practically no water in it. I know. It's crazy. You think of drought in the western United States, but there's definitely some drought going on here, too, because the lake is like totally dried up. So, mm-hmm. Or is it a reservoir? I think it's a reservoir. I, every like east of the Rockies is a reservoir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it definitely has no water in it. So yeah. it's really funny. Like the boat ramps like just like drop off into the ground. <laughs> I don't know how many times in my life I've ever seen the end of a boat ramp. I know, right? It's usually underwater. So, so. Yeah. yeah, it's but. not... Not a lot of water here. Speaking of dry conditions, in <laughs> White Sands, New Mexico, there were some footprints found a few years back, and they've been continuously finding them, but they finally got some papers written and some good dating on these things, and they date to, they're human, and they date to 21 to 23,000 years before present. So, a number of podcasts on the APN have already covered this topic in detail. Mm-hmm. They've discussed it. Life in Ruins did. Talked about it on the Archaeotech podcast, the actual dating of it. So go check those podcasts out. We're not necessarily going to talk solely about White Sands here, but we want to talk about other early sites that might be in contention from a dating standpoint. Yeah, definitely. I know for me... I was in college in the early 2000s, and that was right about the time frame where the early human occupation of North and South America started getting pushed back from what was previously thought. So for me, it's been really interesting to watch these new sites be found and new older dates start pushing back the entry of humans into mm-hmm. these continents and the people of the Americas. It's always the, the big question. And we thought it would be really cool to take a look at some of the sites that have helped to define these dates and to keep pushing these dates back. And we're going to start with three of the sites that just pushed it a little bit back past Clovis times this week. And then next week, we'll talk about some of the way older ones, and that'll include White Sands. So some of them have good dates. Some of them are a little sketchy and (laughs) people are very skeptical of them still. So 
Yeah, we've got kind of like a mixed bag of different types of sites and how much people believe in them. Well, and some of these sites have, you know, possibly some decently datable material, but it's questionable whether the artifacts are actually human created. Exactly. So. And it's also questionable whether the datable material mm-hmm. is human created in some yeah. cases. Yeah. So we'll get to that. But it's very interesting to watch this conversation happen. And I feel like... I. You too, because we were both in college at the same time. It just feels like it was a really cool time to kind of watch that debate grow and evolve Mm -hmm. since we entered the academic community and then went to CRM after that. Right. So let's set the stage here a little bit, and then we're going to talk about a site up in southern Oregon. Yeah. The archaeological community for many decades now has just thought as canon, basically, that the Clovis tradition, which is a what's called a fluted point, it's a it's a long point that you would haft onto the end of a spear, and, and basically you'd split the end of a, a long stick, a long mm-hmm. straight stick, jam this point into it, and the flute is like this long flake that's taken off the bottom, and, and imagine the stick wrapping itself around the point, the flute would just kind of let the stick slot right in there, and then they'd wrap it with, you know, some sort of sinew, and, you know, put fat and stuff around it, and make yourself a spear tip. So... Or, or an atlatl tip or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's what a Clovis point is. And the interesting thing about Clovis points, they were named for Clovis, New Mexico, where they were first at least discovered and named. Right. And from that point on, they were called Clovis points. Well, Clovis points, unlike some other traditions, show up all over North America and South America. Yeah. And they're so distinctive. When you see a Clovis point, you know exactly what you're looking at. Yeah. So it's really, really easy to categorize a site. And generally speaking, all of those sites group into a pretty common and tight date range as well when there is datable material associated with them. So it allowed us to get a really, really good date range and time frame and area for these right. these people. And most of these date to around eight or nine thousand to ten or eleven thousand years ago. That's what Clovis is. So that right. because that is the earliest thing and the most ubiquitous thing found at the same time period, it's always just been assumed that the Clovis people, so to speak, were the first ones to populate North America and then they flowed down into South America. That's kind of been the the going theme and tradition. And a lot of archaeologists and, and teachers and professors still I guess they they probably still believe that from a standpoint of we have concrete evidence for that. We do. Yeah. Yeah. And but now this next article is going to show us we've had growing amounts of evidence for slightly older Mm -hmm. uh, back to around 14,000 years. And in fact, the one the site we're going to talk about Paisley Caves is the first time that I took the boilerplate narrative for Paleo-Indian in North America, where when you're writing a CRM report, they're like, what is the context of this area? You always have to start from the beginning of time. It's like right. a Mishner novel when you're writing a CRM report. <laughs> so you start from the beginning of time in North America, which is 14,000 years ago, according to you know common tradition. But it wasn't in this report. Like It went back, you know, basically Clovis, and yeah. Paisley Caves had just been solidly dated. Everybody's accepting it. So mm-hmm. I wrote about Paisley Caves in this paragraph and, and put it in the boilerplate for for this company. Yeah. It's not too often you get something that fundamentally changes things. And that really did. Yeah, definitely. And the interesting thing to me about Paisley Caves is that they did not find Clovis points there. Right. They are, they found points that were part of the Western stemmed tradition. And some people think that they represent the ancestors of the Clovis tradition because these this site is older. But I've also yeah. seen evidence and people talking about it being a completely different group of people. And they just developed a different 
tradition of large spear points that look a little different. Yeah, archaeologists like to say ancestors when something comes before, but the technology might be an ancestor of Clovis tradition, but without genetic evidence, there's no way you could say there's a yeah. you know human ancestry involved. Yeah, and we should also say that Paisley Caves is unique because the dating comes from coprolites, which is fossilized feces, and they were able to prove that coprolites were human. So we have actual carbon-based evidence of humans at, at this site, and that is really uncommon. There's n- almost no burials associated with these really, really old sites. They just don't last. So we just don't get like hard physical evidence of humans, but Paisley Caves, because it's coprolites, even though... You know, it's poop. (laughs) (laughs) Poop is actually really interesting, and they can learn a lot from it. (laughs) This is the second episode in a row where we've talked about poop. So It is. Well, you know what? I wanted to talk about Mary Anning so that we would have a basis for (laughs) coprolites when we talked about this stuff. The coprolite podcast (laughs) begins now. Oh, my God. So the interesting thing, you might be thinking to yourself, well, how can you carbon date fossilized poop because it's rock now right. and you can't but you can break the copper lights up and some of the stuff that either fossilizes at different rates or may not have fossilized yet would be like seeds and other plant material and stuff that they ate that just doesn't get digested or processed properly in the body and you can date that stuff yeah exactly yeah, but they dated other things on that site too they had over a hundred high precision radiocarbon dates that showed that the artifacts and copper lights that they found in those layers ranged in age from 12,450 all the way up to 2,295 radiocarbon years ago um, and that mean and that's in well-stratified deposits, meaning they were distinct layers that weren't really blending into each other. And you often get that in caves, too, because caves get regular inundation from uh, rain and uh, sediment and silt blowing in and it's just a it just it layers up over the years Mm -hmm. and then once it layers up and stuff comes in it doesn't weather that well right so it just builds and builds and builds like a layer cake yeah that's why you get such a large range 10,000 years of samples there but of course in this case what we're really interested in is the super old stuff and like I mentioned it was the western stemmed projectile points that they were recovering in these deposits and the date to 11,070 to 11,340 years ago. Mm-hmm. And they also had the coprolites, which of course is the fossilized poo. And they determined it to be human using mitochondrial DNA. And I don't really, I can't explain exactly how mitochondrial DNA works. I don't, I know it's passed down through the female line. Well, I don't know if you want to take a stab at that. And yeah, I mean, the mitochondria are, it's, it's, Mitochondria has DNA, right? And the mitochondria are inside your cells. Yes. But your mitochondrial DNA is passed down, like you said, through the female line. So that's how we, if you've ever heard the phrase mitochondrial Eve, they've taken mitochondrial DNA samples from, you know, many humans across the planet, looked at how different they are from each other. And if you look at the, it's a weird genetic clock thing, but if you look at the rates of mutation and how things change, you can walk back those changes through time and come up with a common ancestor or something close. That's mitochondrial Eve. So using mitochondrial DNA, we could, you know, date this. And I think, I don't know the details of that either, but I think mitochondrial DNA is just inside of, and and it's inside the cell and therefore is like one of the last things to probably break down as the cell is breaking down and and as DNA structures are breaking down you can still get at this in in these things. So, and, and I think what they're saying here is not so much using the age, because mitochondrial DNA goes like way back further than 
than well, what it can we, go back millions of years. Yeah, exactly. But I think the presence of mitochondrial DNA that they found in these coprolites is why they were saying these are definitely human coprolites. These are right. not from other animals. These ones with mitochondrial DNA are human. Yeah. But naturally, there are skeptics. There are always skeptics, and there should be skeptics. I think that's totally fine. I'm sure they had to dig through a lot of crap to figure that out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when this first came out, though, the skeptics were saying that the mitochondrial DNA that was found is not reliable because mitochondrial DNA tests are always looking for trace amounts of the, of the DNA, right? And because it's trace amounts that they're testing for, contamination by the researchers themselves or even other people over the years, if there had been other people who visited the caves, could have contaminated the coprolites and, and transferred their mitochondrial DNA, which would make these appear to be human when they mm -hmm. were not. So right. I think that's a fair criticism, but they had a lot of samples with the mitochondrial DNA in it. So I can't imagine contamination would would ruin all of them, right? No. However, there are some pretty consistent things that archaeologists do when they're digging. And unless you have a, a very specific research strategy in place and, and I guess a research design that includes some testing you may want to do if you find it. Now, I don't know if they thought they would find coprolites or if they found them in one season and then came back another season and, right. and found them again. Because if you found them in one season, you know, coprolites aren't necessarily expected. Maybe they are in cave archaeology. I've never dug in a cave before. Yeah, I don't know. But even if they're not and you're coming back season after season like these guys were, then you could come up with a plan and say, okay, if you find this, we're going to stop everything. Mm -hmm. It's like... Uh, it's like the luminescence dating and stuff like that that we've talked about. If you want to see when something was last exposed to the sun, you can't expose it to the sun. Right, right. Like you have to know that when you see it, okay, it's time to put a hood over this thing yeah. and whatever surface is laying Gotta down. Protect it. Yeah, we need to collect this thing in the dark and keep it in the dark until we test it. My common example is ceramics versus bone. Because archaeologists like to lick stuff. Oh, God. So, Please, archaeologists, stop doing that. I'm pretty Just sure. Stop. <laughs> which one's sticky? Like Bone. Bone? Yeah. yeah. So if you lick bone, it's sticky. And, yeah. But you're just like licking bone. Yeah. Like you're potentially <laughs> licking like a person, depending on where, what site you're working on yeah. or who knows. And it, it might be a, it. a valid technique for determining one or the other because bone can look like ceramic in a lot of cases when it's fractured. Yeah. And, and just pieces. But... All I'm saying is, you know, some people like to work with gloves on. Some people don't like to work with gloves on. Some people will lick artifacts. Others will, yeah. you know, spit on it and rub it on your pants if it's dirty and oh, do stuff like that. Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of things we do. But if you go in with a research strategy and you say, listen, we need to do these mitochondrial DNA analysis on these things. So if you find one, don't do anything with it. Yep. Take it and all the soil it's in and throw it in a bag. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to imagine that at least after they found the first couple, they must have started treating them that way. That's why, while I get the skepticism, I'm like, I'd have to read their research strategy in depth. And I couldn't find the original article. I'm not, I don't think it's available open source. Yeah, I don't but, think so. But they, they couldn't have contaminated all of them. But, okay, let's just move on from that. Let's just assume that, okay, maybe they did contaminate all of them. So... What I thought was really cool, and this paper is open source, and we'll link it in our show notes. And it's part of the reason why I wanted to include Paisley Caves in our conversation of pre-Clovis peoples and sites, is that in 2020, another paper came out that looked at the lipid composition. The fat. The fat, yeah, of these coprolites. 
And this lipid composition study that they did confirmed these initial findings from 2012. So anytime you can confirm somebody else's findings through another means, yeah. it starts to just solidify this in the in the archaeological record and people start to exactly. people have to believe it whether they want to or not. Yeah. So So real quickly, how did they do this? Like how could you take fat and confirm it. First of all, like you said, there were things, these coprolites were fossilized, but they were able to pull out things from the fossilized coprolites that they were able to test. And in this case, it was fecal lipid biomarkers. And basically, those are different. The lipid biomarkers are different in every single organism on the face of the earth. People, Mm -hmm. animals, anything that takes a poop. They all have different, yeah, they all have different lipid biomarkers. And in fact, it's not even just in poop, it's in everything. So every single lipid biomarker is different. So they could identify the ones that are human and then go look for those in these coprolites. Now, okay, bring in the contamination thing again. Let's not talk about how contamination could happen. Let's just say that it could happen, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Don't go down that road. Just know that it could happen. However, they knew, they could tell that these were part of the original coprolite, right? So they Mm -hmm. knew for sure that these were coming from like the middle of the original coprolite. They are hydrophobic, so they're not soluble. So they wouldn't have been moved up or down by water. Mm -hmm. And they're also chemically stable. They know this because there are lipid biomarkers in rocks. Even rocks have lipid biomarkers in them. And those rocks are a million years old and they're still stable. So they know from other items that lipid biomarkers are super stable. So because of that, they have this really, really great example of something that was put into that original copper light and it has not changed since it was put in there. So that's why they feel so confident that the lipid biomarkers are accurate, not contaminated, and they confirmed the findings from 2012. So I love that paper. It was, I actually read the whole thing and I don't normally do that with papers. It was really interesting. Mm. I definitely recommend taking a peek at it. All right. Well, with that, that represents the oldest site in the Americas with datable human organic material that nobody is disputing. Yep. And, and, it, and it also has really undisputable stone tools on it as well. Right. From a tradition that we all know of as the Western stem tradition. So So that site pushes back human occupation in the Americas, and you can generally assume at least a thousand years before that, uh, Mm -hmm. people took to get there because they didn't just beam into Oregon. Right. And and especially the Oregon Desert because it was out in in, in eastern Oregon. So that is, again, this, this is where the the bona fide timeline basically ends everything from that point on has something that people see as having something wrong with it or they don't buy it or they just they don't understand what's going on so we're going to move from Oregon all the way down about as far as we can get to Monteverde Chile in segment two Chris Webster here for the archaeology podcast network we strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world one way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once we do that through the use of Zencaster that's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest just send them a link to click on and that's it Zencaster does the rest they even do automatic transcriptions Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code T-A-S. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 141. And in segment two, we are going to move all the way south not quite as far as you can go in South America, mm-hmm. but pretty far south to Monte Verde in Chile. And Isn't it Chile? Chile. If you Ch- want to like Chile. have a Spanish pronunciation. Chile. Chile. Yeah. All right. Chile. There you go. You've been learning Spanish, so got to get those words right. Chile. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about this one for a couple of reasons, partly because this is the very first pre-Clovis site I ever heard of. And I think it's because it's one of the first ones that the archaeology community kind of accepted as truly pre-Clovis and older than we originally thought. Like, this was probably in the early 2000s when mm-hmm. I was in college that that they're talking about this. And anyway, it's the first one I heard of. It's the first one I learned about in college. And so for me, it always stuck in my mind as like the go-to like pre-Clovis site. Yeah, I remember hearing about it in school too, and it was uh, you know relatively new back then. Yeah, so it was pretty exciting, but also you know a, a good point of skepticism for our instructors, which rightly so, as we mentioned in the first segment, you should be skeptical of things that don't have a lot of backing evidence or a lot of other sites. Right. Even if you've got one site that is just like extremely well done you still have to be like okay sure i believe this now but to really paint this picture we need other stuff yeah so skepticism is a good deal yeah and i still don't think they have a whole lot of super old sites like this in south america to help fill in this picture of how people got all the way down to the southern parts of the continent so i think more work certainly does need to be done and we need to find more but it's still a really cool site. Yeah, and one of the quickest ways to get down a coast, uh, down to, say, as far as Chile, and you can't assume that they went from, you know, they're in, like, Paisley Caves going, all right, where are we going to summer? Yeah, no, it wasn't like it's that at be all. Chile. No way. <laughs> so, you know, this was this was migration in the sense of probably what how most early peoples across the planet migrated, and that was following and or looking for food. Right. And it's always driven by food. So if you find a way to say float down the coast whether that's on just logs that are you know haphazardly strapped together whether you invent boating whether you you know whatever it's not that hard especially if you're in the pacific northwest 
anybody who's lived up there has probably seen actual trees floating down the river, Mm -hmm. right? So if you see a tree floating down the river, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to think, man, I could sit on that. And then look, it's just moving me down the river. And then if I just put these two together, now it's wider. Yeah. And if I, if I can just like even, even not even lash them together, but just like hook them together with their branches, look what I can do. Right. So inventing some sort of boat or raft is not that hard, right? If you're in the right area. So thinking that way, all down the coast of the U.S. and Canada, there are forests and trees and just ways to do that and ways to continue making floating objects. I, I hesitate to call them boats, but making floating objects and going down. The problem is to find the evidence of these things for how they may have gotten to Chile, assuming they got there in, you know, a relatively short period of time, short being 500 to 1,000 years versus, you know, tens of thousands of years, Mm -hmm. then we need to look for sites. And those sites, if they came down via the coast, are almost all underwater. Yeah. Even if it wasn't involving boats or any floating mechanisms even if it was just walking and following the coastline all the way down which is another thing that is entirely possible if you're chasing resources those sites would be totally underwater now so it's the kind of thing that we'd have to go hunting for for sure yeah absolutely so let's let's talk about the basics of this site here it was excavated in the 90s and the Dates coming out of it dated it to approximately 15,000 years before present, and some dates were as old as 18,500. Okay. And then by the early 2000s, these dates were pretty set, and it was very, well, not very, but it was pretty well accepted by the community that this was the oldest site in the Americas. Now, the actual excavation itself, there were two main areas, and then there's a third area called the Chinchawapi, which is the name of the river that they were on. So they basically had two sites at Monteverde and then a third, a second site, which represented a third excavation area called Chinchawapi. So the, the main area that they excavated was called MV2 for Monteverde. And that was on the Monteverde site. And that's where they got all the like main stuff that you think of when you think of this site, there's hearth features, post holes, burnt plant material, bones, wood, other organic material, all those kind of great things that they were able to date. And of course, the reason that they were able to date them is because this site is preserved in an anaerobic bog near a creek. Mm. So bogs, of course. Yeah. I don't really understand the chemical stuff behind it, but I know that they are excellent for organic preservation. (laughs) I think they limit the amount of oxygen that Uh can get to something. But it's also wet. Things things that dry out, dry out and go away. They turn to dust. They turn to dust, yeah. Yeah, But if you keep it wet, but also keep it in sort of an anaerobic environment, Mm -hmm. which underneath a bog is going to be that way, then things preserve. So it's just like the lack of oxygen just like basically keeps it in the state that it was in 10,000, 15,000 years ago. It's funny. Oxygen gives almost everything on this planet life, but then when you die, oxygen takes it away. (laughs) That's that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So even on like, even like metal, like iron, it's called ferrous oxide when it Uh rusts because it, the iron combines with oxygen and turns to rust. Yeah. So that's a good point. Oxygen is, it's fickle. Yep. (laughs) So, So the initial radiocarbon dates that came out of the site dated it to around 14,500 years old. Mm -hmm. And they had some lithic tools there as well. They had a lot of this carbon stuff because of the grape preservation, right? So a lot of carbon-based stuff that they could 
test. Yeah. They had some lithic tools. Not super impressive, though. They had some bifaces. They had some debitage. And, but, and debitage, for oh. those of you that may not know, is yeah. kind of a French word for flakes. <laughs> right. <laughs> the material you are left with when you're making lithic tools. Yeah. Stone tools. Yeah. But these tools seem to be pretty rudimentary, and they were more like just a large flake off of a pebble and then they just kind of like sharpen the edge and then just mm-hmm. use that sharp edge. They didn't they didn't have all the beautiful shaping that you see with the Clovis stuff and the Western stemmed and all those other traditions, those early traditions. These guys were more like expedient tools, I guess mm-hmm. you could say. So I thought that was interesting because this site is pretty well developed. There's a large occupation here and it's a large occupation through time too it seems like people kept coming back to this place but the tools at this level associated with these dates were very rudimentary mm-hmm. which makes you wonder like where did they come from and are they related to some of the more sophisticated lithic tool trends up in the north like if that's just it's just yeah. so hard to say well and yeah. you gotta you gotta look at the people too because you said there were there were hearth features post holes indicate structure mm-hmm. or they or they indicate something was jammed into the ground right who knows what that was for right. typically that's for some kind of a you know supporting piece of wood or something for a structure right right and burnt plant material bones 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 and stuff in a hearth and burned bones typically means that they're eating right i mean who's who hasn't sat by a campfire and eaten like a chicken leg or something like that? And when you're done with it, where does it go? Right into the fire. Fair point. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, for sure. So this indicates people were sitting here and living here. Well, when we look at that, I feel like we have to look at the tools and say, well, okay. So were they processing animals? They would. They wouldn't shoot animals in their camp. Right. So the thought of finding complete projectile points unless somebody dropped one and couldn't ever find it again or they broke it while they were making it mm-hmm. it's unlikely you're going to find one of those in camp yeah sometimes we'll find them in hearth features broken because they were they were embedded in the bone of an animal or the remains of the animal were burned just to keep it from rotting and stinking mm-hmm. and the projectile point was still in there and they couldn't find it you yeah, know it's just yeah. part of the right. part of the animal now and sometimes you'll find stuff like that but I don't know. I don't think it's that out of the realm of possibility in this early sort of society to find just processing type flakes, processing yeah. type tools, yeah. you know, because they bring the animal back. Then maybe they were processing hides, scraping scrapers. Them. Yeah. 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 And then scraping bark off of wood for doing other things. They weren't using bow and arrows back then, typically. Not that we have evidence for. Right. That's only in the last like thousand years. Yeah. And, you know, whatever else they had. So. You know, I think you look at the site and it doesn't seem too crazy. Yeah. You know, that's true. I wasn't thinking about the fact that a village site basically wouldn't necessarily have all the 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 tools required for actual hunting. So, well, yeah. and the crazy thing is when we talked about Clovis or, or people do talk about Clovis, there aren't really any Clovis village sites. No, there's not. Yeah. So we they're don't temporary know. hunting camp types yeah. of things. We find Clovis points because they're huge. They're not huge. They can be really big. They're bigger than comparatively. Comparatively. Yeah. yeah later yeah. points. But they're usually found in association with whatever was killed mm-hmm. or they're just found randomly because maybe you missed and yeah. never found the tip again. Never yeah. found your spear tip yeah. uh, or or it was inside of an animal and and has since decayed the animal's gone but the stone remains right so yeah we don't know where or how the clovis people so-called lived but finding a site like this that is clearly habitation Mm -hmm. that old is pretty cool yeah in fact i don't know 
is this is maybe one of the oldest habitation sites that we have good it, evidence of. It probably is because it comes down to that like actual organic yeah. remains that we know for sure are associated with human activity, similar to Paisley Caves, but Paisley did them one better because they mm-hmm. were actual like human organic remains. These yeah. are not organic. They don't have any bones from people or anything like that. So they're not human organic remains, but they can clearly tell that humans were living here. So that's like the next best thing, right? Yeah. So, and these these dates that take it back to about fourteen thousand five hundred are very solid. Nobody is disputing those. It's very well accepted. However, however, <laughs> <laughs> there's always a however at the end of a sentence like that. So the other, the second site that I've mentioned that is on Monte Verde is called MV One. That section of the site has a piece of burnt wood that dated to thirty three thousand years ago. 33,000. That's old. That is very old. That is way... that that. And that's only one piece? It's one piece. Mm. I know. <laughs> that yeah. grumble says it all. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what everybody said at the time. And even the researchers themselves were like, look, we've got this one old piece of wood, dates to this time. We need to do more research here. So... What they did in 2015 is they did go and do more excavation and look for more things to help corroborate this 33,000 year old date. And what they found was that they couldn't corroborate that 33,000 year old date. Yeah. I'm not sure why that it, maybe it was a natural burned piece of wood. Maybe it it's contaminated somehow. Who knows why it was so old, but I think we can confidently say that that's probably not representative of an old occupation there. But in 2015, when they went back to to do more research here, they were kind of testing in between the MV1 and MV2 area. And they were able to push the dates back to about 18,000 years Mm. before present, which is a lot older than we thought. And it just goes to show that, like, the more you look, the the more you keep digging, the more you might find below what you previously thought was the oldest stuff. Because that's kind of what they did here. And the stuff that they were finding was like a... It was dispersed artifacts, a couple hearts here and there, things that they were able to date, but it was pretty dispersed, pretty scattered. And it seems like it's probably like a temporary camp kind of situation, which is very similar to what we find with these these old sites. Mm -hmm. But the fact that there were hearts made it so that they were able to get pretty solid dates and push it back to 18,000 years before present. Interesting that they say that they think the older levels represent temporary camps, like you said, in, in the phrasing of before the main occupation several thousand years later. Right. That's like saying the early British and Anglo-Saxons made temporary cities so I could live in Reno, Nevada. <laughs> like, how do they have any connection to thousands of years ago? It's interesting when, yeah. we, when we start looking back this far and we find, oh, look at these temporary camps dated to 18,000 years. And then we've got this site dated to 13, 14, 15,000 years. Well, they must have been doing this before they did this. This separated by, if you're even separated by a couple hundred years, you have nothing to do with the other. Yeah. Let alone thousands of years. Yeah. Now, I mean, the people might be the same. They're all living in the same area. They're doing the same thing. Very little changes in that kind mm-hmm. of a world, but very little connection, I feel, to that far back. I, I completely agree. And I'll give a quick example of something recently that we found that I think totally illustrates that. So we're working in Nevada, right? on a survey and my crew and I, we found a really large lithic scatter with tons of artifacts on it, including diagnostic projectile points and stuff like that. Right. Mm -hmm. 
I, we didn't find any features, subsurface features, but we weren't looking for that. There weren't any on the surface and we weren't going to dig below the surface. Obviously, it was just a survey. Yeah. However, this site, which probably is several thousand years old, I think we had some archaic projectile points on it, is on this stream terrace overlooking a sort of seasonal creek area, right? Yeah. Well, you know what else was right on that terrace, although on the other side of the creek? A current ranch, a current <laughs> farm. And I think that there were some older buildings there, too, that were probably from maybe 50 years ago or something like that, right? The farm was clearly the later expression of the <laughs> earlier Native American site. I, exactly. I'm just saying, like, these, this area was beautiful. It had resources. It was great yeah. for the Native Americans. It was great for the white people that came along later. And it makes sense that they would both settle in the same area but have completely nothing to do with each other. Yeah. So there you go. There's your modern example of that exact thing. Well, a few episodes ago, we had on our friend Jason Cooper talking about a site that we did up in Washington State where there was actually current houses over the top of, yeah. you know, nine to 13,000 year old artifacts yeah. and sites. And I mean, the only thing that these would have anything to do with each other is people like living next to a river. I don't think that's changed. People love water. <laughs> yeah. People love water. Animals yeah. love water. I yeah. think that's just a universal to being alive. Yeah. Things love plants, love water. Trees love water. <laughs> yeah. Literally everybody loves water. Humans are all freaking the same when it comes down to it. <laughs> yeah. So everyone wants to be near the water and yeah. that's where you're going to be. So that's the only, the only real similarity. Yep. So definitely. So yeah, I don't think we can say that the older occupation necessarily Necessarily had anything to do with the younger one, but it is there, and it yeah. pushes those dates back for Monteverde, which right. I thought was really cool. And it it seems like that is well accepted by the community too. So yeah, so I think we're about eighteen thousand years before present at this point. And from here, we're going to go to a site that is much farther north, back in the United States, and pushes that date back even farther. Back in a minute. <laughs> You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to the final segment of the Archaeology Show, episode 141. And we're going to talk about, as Rachel said, a couple of sites in the United States now, one of which we are going to be about 40 miles away from in like two and a half hours from this recording. Yeah. <laughs> so, yep. yeah, that's outside Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. It's north of Austin, Texas, and it's called the Galt site. Yes. So the other one we're going to talk about is called Topper, and it's in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. 
And the reason we're grouping these two together is because they both kind of come in with dates in a similar time range in the like 20,000 ish range, but they have vastly different acceptance (laughs) among the the scientific community. So we'll talk about both of them and why they're maybe good or not good or whatever. So starting with Galtz. It is located about 40 miles north of Austin, Texas, which is where we're headed to next. So I don't know. It's on a piece of property that is owned by either a university or like a, a archaeological trust or something like that. So, But I don't think it's open to the public. So we're not yeah. going to be able to like go there or anything. But um, we will be in the area. We'll be able to talk to some people and know some people. Maybe. Yeah. So the reason Galt got on my list is because Life in Ruins just interviewed Robert Lassen who has worked on this site and it was really cool to hear his accounting of actually working on this site so you guys should totally go listen to their episode we'll link to it in the show notes Mm -hmm. but it was a great interview with him about his time working on this site plus some other stuff he's doing yeah so anyway this area in north of Austin Texas is extremely resource rich it's the meeting of two eco zones the first one's called the Edwards Plateau and then the other one is called the Lower Blackland Prairie, which doesn't really mean a whole lot to me as a not Texas archaeologist. But what that means is it's just two areas coming together. And there's a creek there as well called Buttermilk Creek that always has water in it. So it was just this great area where these things came together. Oh, and the other thing, too, is there's this Edwards chart, which they talk a lot about in the Life and Ruins episode. So go listen to it. (laughs) But this Edwards chart is really high quality chart. It was great for tool making. So that source for that was also in this area. So really, it was like this nexus of all this really amazing resource stuff. So the Galt site, according to the excavations and all the data, was essentially continuously occupied by Native American groups from pre-Clovis, so long time ago, mm-hmm. um, all the way up to what they call uh, late prehistoric times. And late prehistoric is late prehistoric is typically around 500 years ago, but it's also thought of as pre-contact. But we don't yeah. really say pre-contact anymore. Yeah, and contact by Europeans is what that means. Mm-hmm. But actually, contact in this area would have been a bit later. I think not the 1400s, but probably the 1500s. Yeah, probably. Yeah, by Spanish explorers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. So Spanish conquistadors, they called them that for a reason. That's why we don't really acknowledge them. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, so the site definitely has many, many, many layers of occupation. And I'm not really sure why they decided to go below the Clovis layer, but you have to be really happy that they did. And Robert Lassen, in his episode with Life and Ruins, he described actually excavating below the Clovis zone. And it was like digging through 10 to 15 centimeters of concrete, he said, (laughs) (laughs) before all of a sudden artifacts began popping up. So the story there is just so cool. And I'm like, why did they even go below it into this concrete zone? But gosh, I'm so glad that they did because they found what's called the Galt assemblage in this really well stratified layer below the Clovis zone. It contains small projectile points of both stemmed and lancelet traditions. So that's stemmed is like your basic like point that you could haft onto um, a spear of some sort. Or an arrow, I mean. For later times. For later, yeah. But I don't think they were using them at that point. Yeah. And then the lancelet are more like knife style. They're really like long and skinny Mm -hmm. and they, they don't have the like stems on them. They just have sort of a concave base usually. So this is getting a little bit into the weeds here, but it seems like the stuff that they were finding in this galt assemblage was part of both a 
the biface and also the blade and core lithic traditions. Yeah, so bifaces are basically flakes that you take off of a core that are worked on both sides, but the the like blade and core traditions are they're they're developed in a different way. You can do what's called like I think it's called like bipolar percussion, where you take a uh, you take a hard surface, you stick a core on it, so whatever whatever material you're doing, hopefully something that's not as hard, mm-hmm. and then you stick that on it like an anvil, and then you take another thing from the top and crack down on top of it, and you crack all the way down. You have a piece that comes off from the top to the bottom that is more blade like. Oh, okay, yeah. that's so cool. That's that's getting into um, the core and blade and core lithic traditions. And it, is, it really is, you know, probably lightly modified. They're going to be have a little bit of a curve to them. Mm-hmm. And you could take one of those and still make a biface out of it if you totally, you know, whittle it down, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, flint napping, it's called. But if you leave it more core-like, more blade-like off the core, then, then it's a little more rudimentary. Mm-hmm. But also an expedient tool that's very sharp and useful. That's really cool. Okay, so I I wasn't really sure about the difference between those, but that makes complete sense. And it sounds like they had examples of both in this pre-Clovis stratigraphy. Yeah, and I want to go back first to to what Robert Lassen was saying in the Life and Ruins episodes about digging through the 10 to 15 centimeters of concrete. That's pretty common in our experience to hit one of two things and Ah, stop digging. Uh, Well, one of three things. You either hit water, Mm -hmm. and then it's really difficult to get anything out of a hole that, that is at the water table. Better break out your water screen if you're going <laughs> to. Right. Doesn't mean, well, your hole's probably going to cave in too. Yeah. It doesn't too. mean there's nothing down there. It just means it's really hard to dig. So we're like, mm, going to stop now. Okay, bye. Yep. <laughs> or it's usually two sterile levels. Uh, as long as, if you don't know anything about the other area and you're digging in say 10 centimeter levels, if you hit two sterile levels, it's usually thought, okay, let's stop right there. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any science behind that, but it's more probably a financial decision and cultural resource management. Yeah. You know, to stop at two sterile levels and move on. Uh, typically, that's relatively deep for the most part. Mm-hmm. But And it, levels are usually in 10 centimeter chunks. So you're talking yeah, they can be. probably 20 centimeters with nothing in it, which does seem reasonable when you think about it like that. Yeah, but now that but, I'm actually saying that out loud, thinking of somebody listening to this, I'm like... You know, we can dig 2,000 shovel tests across a landscape at 30 meter intervals. With the transects are 30 meters, the length of the shovel test between them are 30 meters. So you've got this checkerboard, you know, mix of, of shovel tests across a landscape. And in one, you might find something in the first two levels and then have sterile, sterile mm-hmm. material. In another one, you might find something, nothing in the first level, something in the second level and third level, and nothing in the fourth and fifth. Mm-hmm. And then if you were to dig down, you might find in another area entirely something in like the fourth and fifth level because obviously sites weren't you know areas weren't continuously occupied so why would you find something at every level everywhere so if you're looking for different occupation times it's now striking me as obvious that we should actually dig down as far as we can possibly go in every single shovel test. Why yeah. would you stop at sterility? Yeah, you it's know? a good point. I think the geomorphology needs to play a role probably to some extent because so it helps if you have a well stratified area because then you can say, all right, well, when you hit this red layer, then mm-hmm. You know, we know that there's artifacts in that over here on this side of the site. So definitely pay attention here. And then these two gray and black layers or whatever, you know, like you can get some. Well, yeah. The other thing, too, is to is to see if we can geologically date those layers. Yeah. I mean, 
we have to be cautious of stuff up to apparently 121,000 years ago. But <laughs> if we know that a layer, like a bedrock layer or something that seems really hard, is, you know, conclusively dates to 200,000 years ago or 2 million years ago, then we can probably stop. You can probably stop. We yeah. can probably stop. Yeah, but for if sure. But if it's within the last 20,000 years... And we can and we can say that. Yeah, we know that. Then we probably ought to keep going. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we're learning from researching these sites is that we should have been digging deeper a long time ago. And now that we know that sites are older than we realize, we mm-hmm. should definitely be going a lot deeper now than we have in the past. So that's your right. PSA from this episode. <laughs> so speaking of levels, the original dating for the Galt site was basically they knew where the Clovis material was. They uh-huh. saw the Clovis material and this stuff was below it. Correct. And the law of superposition says that if it's below it, it's older. Yep. And that's pretty well accepted in geology in general. Yeah. Uh, so. And I think they were working on this site in the 90s. That's when Robert Lassen was working mm-hmm. on it. So they've known that this stuff was older than Clovis for a long time, but I don't, I don't know if they had assigned dates to it or if they just were like it's older. It's older. Yeah. But in 2018, they revisited the site and used OSL dating, which is like my new favorite dating method. Mm, I feel like stimulated luminescence. <laughs> yeah. It seems like this is just popping up everywhere to help confirm dates and provide dates for sites that didn't mm-hmm. ever have any. Yeah. So as a refresher, because we've talked about this before, OSL dating is basically without getting into the physics of it. Mm hmm. Uh, certain types of rock and fired ceramics can be done this way too, but these aren't ceramics, but certain rocks you can, essentially it has to do with how the electrons are stored within the material. Mm -hmm. And when it's exposed to sunlight, electrons are moved to different levels. And when you basically either bury it or it's flipped over and it's got the, like it's dropped, the the side that's on the bottom is no longer exposed to sunlight and no longer being altered in a way that we can detect. Right. So if you pick up that artifact after you unbury, uncover part of it when you're digging, you've just almost essentially ruined the OSL dating. Right. I don't know what kind of time period it takes. Like if you just pick it up, go, oh crap, and put it back down. Oh yeah, okay? like how much exposure yeah, ruins like it. Yeah, like how quick does that happen? Yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about that. But yeah. I know that you are measuring, you're measuring the, it's kind of like the last time it was seen by light. Yep. And you're using these two. And it's it's very, it's pretty precise. Yeah. And, and accurate. It seems so, so amazing to me. I, I wish that we had had that technology with some of these older sites because it would have really helped to be able to do it. Mm-hmm. But once you move that artifact and it's exposed to sunlight, then you, yeah. you lose that ability to do it. But in these new excavations, they were able to do it. And the OSL dating of the lowest cultural material levels gives dates between 21,000 and 16,000 before present. Yeah. And so they found the median age to be 18,500. And so that's kind of what they're saying is the approximate age of these artifacts Mm -hmm. that are below the Clovis layer, which there we go, pushing it back again. I mean, it could be as as old as 20,000, you know, like we just keep, keep creeping that date back by, by just digging a little bit deeper. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, one thing to remember too, is we throw around all these dates. You have to listen to when we say before present. And when we say, when we say something like 
I don't know. Like BCE or whatever. Yeah, like BCE. Yeah. BCE includes the, you know, 2000 plus years. The 2000 break. Since zero. Yeah. Right. So when you say before present, a lot of times you'll, you'll see Clovis timeframes dated to like 10,000 BCE, mm-hmm. which would be 12,000 before present. Yeah. Yeah. So, cause before the common era is before uh, it's it's what they use to take religion out of it because usually it's before Christ yeah. and after death yeah. but not every religion wants to not every person on the planet wants to follow along with that mm-hmm. so science came up with before the common era and uh, after what is it CE common era common era yeah so yeah and i think north american archaeologists tend to use bp because it just makes more sense since there was easier. no christianity here before yeah <laughs> at that point like it wasn't christianity here until you know 500 600 years ago so yeah when anyway. you're talking absolute dates why yeah. why have a middle point yeah exactly so so that is galt Oh, and they also used the OSL t- dating to confirm what they thought the dates were of the Clovis levels. So yeah. that also helped to just like place everything in the proper date range. And also the stratigraphy was confirming that. So using both of those methods, they were able to really like confirm yeah. the dates of that area. All right. So let's talk about Topper. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this for various reasons, but it's basically in South Carolina on the banks of the uh, Savannah River. Mm-hmm. And there is a Clovis layer at Topper. Yep. That's, that's pretty well defined. Very similar to Galt yep. in that respect. They've got the occupations and yeah. Clovis is part of it. And then they've got what they think is pre-Clovis dating back anywhere from 15,000 to 50,000 years ago. Yeah. And the pre-Clovis stuff... I mean, the further back you go, the less secure it gets in reality. Some of the tools, especially when you're talking about next to a river, this is the same thing at like the Cerruti site down in San Diego that they thought was, you know, around 120,000 years ago. When you're looking at rudimentary tools, you can relatively easily make something that looks like an early tool just by banging it together. And Mm -hmm. rivers bang rocks together all the time. They do. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to be really careful. This area has been pummeled by hurricanes, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, 10, 15, 20 times a year for the last 50,000, 100,000, you know, 2 million years. Who knows? Yeah. So. And they don't have nice chert there like they have at Galt. They've got probably like a rhyolite or something like that that just doesn't have the nice, pretty, perfect breaks that you get when it's a flake made by a human hand so they have what they're calling tools there one of them i believe is called the topper chopper oh my god (laughs) which is basically just like a it's like a cobble with a flake taken off of each side so that it comes down to a point and then that that could be a rudimentary tool but it also could have happened naturally so there's a lot of skepticism around whether or not the tools there are actually tools right? and none of it has been, I mean, there are dates for the stuff that they're finding mm-hmm. below, below the Clovis layer. They even have one that goes to 50,000 years. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think it's just a natural root burn, Yeah, <laughs> but so yeah, there's just a lot of skepticism around this site because the pre Clovis stuff is just not good enough. The stratigraphy is not good enough. The dating's not good enough. And the artifacts themselves are not good enough. I think the takeaway from all this is that you have two components at every archaeological site. You have the material and you have the stuff you're dating. Sometimes it's the same thing, mm-hmm. but a lot of times when you're going back this far, it's not the same thing. You're doing relative dating and you're dating stuff around it. Now with OSL, in some cases, you're actually dating the the artifacts themselves right? and, and the last time they were exposed to, to light, something like that. So 
that being said, you, you got to look at both of them. And in some of these cases of some of the sites we talked about and some we're going to talk about next week, the artifacts are really good, but it's like, you know, is the dating is in question mm-hmm. or the dating's really good, but are these even human artifacts? Yeah. You know, when you start going back really far, you got to start to wonder. Now, I studied a lot of paleoanthropology and some of the oldest artifacts on the planet that people really see as things used by pre-humans, homo habilis and, and, and beyond are over 2 million years old. Mm -hmm. I mean, the old one chopper is basically just a cobble with a couple sharp edges on it. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty clearly a tool these days. Yeah. And, uh, and I think they've seen chimpanzees making them as well, yeah. but that being, that doesn't make it not a tool. Right. So anyway, we got to look at all the evidence. It's tough. It's tough with yeah. rocks that can break naturally. They could have been altered by a human yeah. 500 years ago, as opposed to 10,000 years ago or whatever you want it to be like, cause rocks just don't change that much. So it's yeah. hard. It's much better when you have really solid dating to go with them, but you just don't always get those in the same site. So, yeah. All right. So in part two of this, we're going to continue on and we're going to talk about the site. Everyone's talking about white sands, New Mexico and the footprints. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to go to a cave in Mexico and then back up to the United States for Meadowcroft rock shelter over in Pennsylvania. And then the old granddaddy of them all, (laughs) the Cerruti mammoth site, which we talked to, I talked to the author of this paper a few years ago on this show. We'll link to that. Mm -hmm. And, also, Life and Ruins talked about it a few times with some of their experts. So the Cerruti site was dated to 121,000 years old, and it's the oldest thing in North America and South America that someone thinks was created by humans. And we will talk about that in part two. So join us next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.